Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for This Week in Law is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Twill, This Week in Law with Denise Howell. Episode 102, recorded March 11, 2011. Private Eyes. This episode of This Week in Law is brought to you by Squarespace.com, the fast and easy way to publish a high-quality website or blog. For a free 14-day trial, go to squarespace.com slash twill. Hi, folks. Welcome to Twill. This is Denise Howell, and we're here with a great panel today to talk about all things related to technology and law that happened this week and in the coming weeks. So we've got joining us today from Forbes and her not-so-private parts blog, Kashmir Hill. Hi, Kashmir. Hi, Denise. Hi, everyone. Great to have you back on Twill. Also a return visitor joining us again from the Trademark blog and his new firm, Leeson Ellis, in White Plains, New York, is Marty Schwimmer. Hi, Marty. Hey, Denise. How are you? I'm great. Good to see you as well. And uh, joining us too is Evan Brown from Hinshaw and Culbertson in Chicago and internetcases.com. Hi, Evan. Hello, hello. Great to see you. Great to see you too. So um, today is an interesting day for us all to be recording. It's a day where we're all in places that are less interesting than a lot of the places in the world at the moment. Of course, uh, the earthquake in Japan on Friday afternoon, their time, which hasn't happened yet, my time, which is always a bit freaky, um, <laughs> it happened last night for me. And uh, we are just watching the aftermath of that. And uh, our hearts and uh, thoughts go out to all the folks in Japan. You, the images are rolling in even as we speak, and it's just devastating and awful. And we were talking about it before we started recording. And, uh, you know, can't really go forward without mentioning it. And, um, just being sort of staggered by the scale of it. So um, there's that happening as we're uh, going out here. And also um, on a lighter and completely different note, uh, South by Southwest is taking place in Austin, uh, which is near and dear to all of our hearts in the world of technology and the intersection of technology and law. And I have a little update from some former TWIL panelists and soon to be again future TWIL panelists to uh, tell us about um, what's going on on their panel there at South by Southwest. Uh, we've got Lisa Barodkin and Jack Lerner giving their talk at uh, 3.30 Central, 1.30 Pacific time today. They're going to discuss and debate the Social Network Bill of Rights that they discussed previously on the show at South by Southwest Interactive. Um, if you're interested, that's going to be as soon as we wrap Twill, uh, shortly after we wrap Twill, uh, you can check out more at snubillofrights.com and uh, a wonderful Twitter hashtag to follow today as they're doing all this is pound snubor S-N-U-B-O-R um, to uh, follow along with them. They're both going to be with us on April 15th to uh, give us the debriefing from there. So um, hope they are having fun and all our Twill family who are also at or Twit family who are also at uh, South by Southwest are uh, scrambling and having a great time there. We wish we were there. 
but we're not. Uh, we're here in our respective spots. Um, other places where interesting things are going on that we are not are, uh, for example, in the EU and specifically in Spain, I believe. Kashmir, can you bring us up to speed on what's going on in Europe about the right to forget? Sure. So the European uh, Commission right now is talking about a new a new privacy directive, uh, and one component of it is the right to be forgotten. Um, and this means being able to kind of erase certain things about yourself on the internet or in particular databases. And um, it's starting to to get moving already. Um, there are like, over. 80 cases in Spain of people who want to have things removed from their Google searches, uh, links that go to something that's out of date or inaccurate. And the one that I focused on um, and the Wall Street Journal focused on is uh, a Spanish plastic surgeon who uh, was a, who had a, a kind of, one of his patients had a botched um, breast surgery and um, El Pais wrote a newspaper article about it and talked about how the plastic surgeon um, had been uh, accused of malpractice. And he was he was later um, acquitted of that, but this newspaper article still shows up and it doesn't talk about the acquittal. And so he asked Google to remove it. Uh, Google, as is their policy, said no. Google always sends you to the original source. So they say, go talk to El Pais, um, who also refused to, to take this newspaper article out of their archive um, for, uh, I mean, that's what, that's what news, <laughs> news organizations do. And right. um, so he went to the Spanish uh, Data Protection Agency, the Spanish privacy regulator, and they agreed with him and told Google, told Google that, they, that they need to um, help him and remove this link from his, his personal Google search. And there's uh, over uh, 80 other cases um, about this. And Google is is fighting that. They're appealing it. And now it's going to move. I, the Spanish court is thinking about referring it to the European court, um, uh, a higher court to, to make a decision about this. But uh, again, it just taps into this right to be forgotten and whether we should have more control over our reputations in, in the internet age, which is a topic near and dear to my and the not-so-private parts part. So what's going to happen to Google? I mean, they have to follow the local laws in the places where they're doing business. Uh, what's going to happen? I mean, the EU tends to be fairly restrictive about these kinds of things. It seems to me within the realm of reality that they, they could well mandate that Google start deleting things. Yeah, it seems, it seems to me that that would be the case as well. Um, I mean, Google has different policies in different countries. Um, in the case of um, is it, is it Germany, where um, they ask that certain, um, um, certain searches not be allowed so that um, if you're searching like for Nazism, they, they basically censor the, the search results. So they do make uh, different policies for different countries, and they're fighting this one. Um, Peter Fleischer, their, their, their global privacy council, had a really interesting post on his personal blog talking about how this challenges, um, you know, free speech and who gets to decide um, who gets to decide what the public gets to know. I mean, if you were going to go to this plastic surgeon, maybe you would want to know that you know, he was once accused of, of malpractice. Um, so it's, it's about you know, whose who's rights um, whose rights are most important. 
Marty, do you think this is relevant in in the era where even if, um, you know, people are able to perhaps purge search results, there are going to be other sites out there that are reviewing and critiquing people like plastic surgeons. And you could, you know, if you're doing your due diligence, you wouldn't just do a Google search on them. You'd also go to Yelp and see that this guy has terrible reviews or, or consumer reports or various other sources. Does this matter? As a, as a commercial matter, of course, it's horrible. Um, I think we've talked about AVO on this show, which is a directory about lawyers. And, I mean, we live in fear. I mean, not lawyers, but any professional where there's going to be a hard case is going to be angry at you, perhaps in your view, wrongfully angry at you. And they're going to write horrible comments about you. So there's clearly this, this understandable fear about bad information. At the same time, as I'm reading about this article, I'm wondering, how could a newspaper article be private in any way? I don't, I don't understand that. Um, and I also think that there's this logistical problem, which is once it's out there, it's out there. So isn't someone going to, you know, copy that 91 article on the doctor and just out of spite post it on their site? So it seems like a um, kind of, and, and WikiLeaks would be the, the best example of, sure. the, of the inability to, to get the cat back to get something back in the bag. Um, <laughs> the genie back in the bag. As I'm, as I'm the scalpel the cat in the, back in the bottle. <laughs> Some mixed metaphor. You understand what I mean. But um, as I'm thinking about this, I'm also reminded about the last time I was on the show. I was um, complaining about how my 14-year-old son had an embarrassing photograph of him on Facebook. And I reminded him about how grandma was one of his friends on Facebook. And now I'm worrying about you know, colleges, it's, he's, he's getting to that age about mm -hmm. um, his posting is going to be on Facebook. And I'm thinking, as a technical matter, the genie cannot go back into the bottle and the cat cannot get back into the bag. Um, it's out there, it's out there. And that principle is enshrined in a lot of laws and trade secret law, um, things like that. What we well, are for people in your son's position, they're trying hard to, to put the genie back in the bottle. I'm not sure where I read this. Maybe Kashmir will remember or know what this is, uh, where this emanates from. But I have been reading about colleges that as part of their um, career planning, career placement offices are, are providing to students as part of their services, uh, Facebook purging services. They can go through and... Um, see exactly if there's anything controversial that a red flag pops up um, for anything that you have um, in a social media kind of context. And they help you clean up your act, as it were, um, so that there's nothing uh, for employers. It, it, do you know what I'm talking about, Kashmir? Um, I, I don't know particularly of that program that colleges are doing. I do know that there's an, an app called uh, SocioClean, and mm -hmm. it's something that um, you can run your Facebook account through, and it'll identify things you might want to take down, whether it's foul language or references to drinking or partying. Um, and yeah, they advise that you, you know, go through before uh, applying to colleges or applying for a job. Uh, and it goes, you know, all the way back, maybe things that you you've forgotten about that are there. Right. So that takes care of maybe your own house, but you know, as far as the doctor's example, that's, that's nothing that he posted on his own profile. Evan, any thoughts on this? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I have a little bit of, um, 
aversion, if you will, to this notion of the right to forget and, and calling it that. I think that may mischaracterize what the real problem is here. And I know just like net neutrality, that term doesn't fully encapsulate the, the notion of what we're talking about. Can Cognitively, I like to think of it as <clears throat> network discrimination instead of network neutrality. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, in, in, along these lines, this notion of the right to forget, calling it that leads us astray a little bit from the, the real important issue here, which I think you know, even though we're seeing this stuff happening in Spain uh, with this litigation in Spain and then in France, there's been some proposed legislation about a right to forget that we've talked about. Even though that's happening on there and we think, oh, it's those crazy Europeans doing whatever they're doing. I don't think that the sensibilities are really that much different than those that we hold different or that we hold sacred here in the United States. And that sensibility is what underlies all of the law of defamation. And it's this, we feel some inherent right uh, to have uh, or an unalienable right to have a true picture about us painted in the world. And, you know, to the extent somebody says something false about you and that harms your reputation, that's actionable in a defamation lawsuit. So with this stuff out here on the web, I think to the extent that the, the things that are out there that are mischaracterizing a person or painting a picture that's misleading, there is something there that needs to be addressed. This, of course, quickly bumps up against the First Amendment, you know, especially of the publishers of these sites. You know, it's very unsavory to think about a court order telling Google or, a, or a, you know, a web publisher, take this stuff down because it violates someone's right to be forgotten. There, I'm, I'm saying it. Um, and, and so I don't know how to articulate what the standard should be, but I don't think we should deny this sensibility. And instead, we should allow... Um, you know, particular cases to help us draw the line of, of demarcation between a redressable right that is given life by this sensibility and the First Amendment somewhere. So I guess my caution is to, to not think that the, the, the right to be forgotten and what it truly means is something that we should just dismiss um, as, as crazy talk. Okay, yeah, well, like the, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I Pragmatically, when I look at this case, I wonder why El Pais won't just go back and add another link that says, okay, this, you know, this malpractice claim um, was resolved and he was acquitted. I mean, that's, that's what I want to do as a, as a blogger and as a writer, that there should be some kind of, rather than taking things out or deleting things, that there should be almost an annotation system uh, for the web where people have for their own personal search results, maybe they get to annotate certain things. Um, so yeah, I, that, I just want to throw good. more information at it. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I mean, remember, where oftentimes people will think, you know, where there's smoke, there's, there's fire. And if, if there's an awful lot of smoke out there that causes readers or users to know something about someone, it's hard for them to subsequently unknow that, regardless of, of whether you're throwing truckloads of new information at them. You know, there's still, you know, going to be, um, you know, uh, you know, after all, I can't believe that most of us might think that O.J. Simpson committed murder. I mean, can you believe, you know, that or, <laughs> or you know, so it's just like, like I say, it's it's hard to uh, it's hard. It's hard to unring the bell. Well, I don't know how we talk about this and not go straight into talking about Courtney Love and the fact that she recently, we alluded to this on the last show, uh, paid close to half a million dollars to someone who sued her over her tweets for libel. 
um, she, uh, I guess, uh, had a bit of a grudge against uh, somebody who allegedly overcharged her for some dresses. She wrote a series of tweets, um, basically saying some not very nice things about this person who uh, the, the not nice things were apparently untrue. And Kashmir, you covered this and you, you struck on a theme that has fascinated me ever since I started writing a blog back at the beginning of the last decade. And uh, that is um, this notion that, you know, as we become more and more public figures and micro celebrities of some kind, as you said, uh, the defamation and invasion of privacy claims uh, morph and change and, and definitely uh, the proof aspect of them in court becomes a moving target. Um, do, do you have any more thoughts about this Courtney Love case? Yeah, I always have to come up with these things saying that I'm not a lawyer. I always, I look mm-hmm. at it kind of phil- philosophically. Um, but I do think it's, it's in, in this particular case, um, so it was a dress designer and she had designed some dresses for Courtney Love. And uh, I guess Love thought that they would be free because I guess that's usually the way that it works in Hollywood. Um, but then she got uh, she got bills for them and they were quite high. And so she got upset. And, you know, the immediacy of Twitter allows you to say things uh, very quickly without thinking them through. And so she wrote some horrible things about her. Um but the the woman is is kind of a public figure. I think she um, she goes. I forget her name right now, but um, she goes it's by in the, your story um, here. Um, goodness, it's unpronounceable. Simo Rengeker. <laughs> it's uh, like her, her Don, kind of public Don, Don is, Don the, is her first name. We can go with Don. And her public person, I think, is the the boudoir queen. You know, mm-hmm. she has a website. She's very she's very public. Um, and so if this case had gone um, forward, I think one of the claims that Love was going to make is that she was, uh, this woman was a public figure. Um, and I, I think there's a time when, you know, a dress designer wouldn't be a public figure, but now we have all these micro celebrities and within Hollywood, she probably is somewhat famous. Um, so I was just, I, I was excited to see how that would be received um, in court. But since she settled, we didn't get to, we didn't get to see that see that happen. Right. Evan, do you think uh, we would have seen any nuances here or just a, a straight sort of defamation claim? Probably a straight defamation claim. I mean, clearly, if Courtney Love was going to raise that as an issue, that issue would get addressed. But I don't think that they would have come out on the side of this dress designer being a public figure or even a a limited public figure. And this is interesting. As I was thinking about this, preparing for the show, Denise, I remember you asked me a question along these lines way back in 2006 when I was speaking at a conference out in San Francisco about, you know, defamation in, in Section 230. And that was the very first time I had thought of this you know, can could like, you know, a blogger or something be a, uh, you know, a, a micro celebrity to such an extent that they become a public figure. And and I think that the, that the sensible way of looking at this is to realize why we treat public figures differently. Um, and that is, I mean, it, it's a pretty um, sophisticated question. And it kind of even goes back to, you know, what Jeremy Bentham said about public discourse and stuff way back in the 17th or 18th century. <clears throat> Um, or 19th century, right? Um, and and it's, it's because these people who put themselves or otherwise find themselves in the public arena should be subject to a greater level of public scrutiny. And those who choose to critique public figures in this way should be given more leeway. Now, that, you know, as with so many 
principles has as its foundation the notion of the public interest and a positive aspect of, of the public interest. These days, um, you know, things are, are different than they were when the case, you know, like the, the New York Times case that kind of established the, the standard, you know, requiring actual malice. Uh, for their, when you're going after, when you are a public figure going after someone. Uh, times are different now because the tools that we have available to us, um, allow us, uh, allow many more people to attain the status of micro celebrity. And, and so what does it really mean? Well, it may mean that you're very well known and there's a, there's a lot known about you by a small group of people. And you may traditionally be, you know, considered a, a limited purpose public figure. Um, someone, when, when I think of limited, purpose public figure. I think of someone like Cindy Sheehan. I think she's a great example. And I didn't, you know, develop her as an example. I think maybe we've talked about her as an example of this kind of public figure, limited purpose public figure on the show before. Remind me um, who she is. She is the, the, she's the one who hated George Bush more than anyone else in the planet. <laughs> Remember, she was that, that um, anti-war uh, she was the mother of a, her son died in Iraq, and so she was just extremely vocal against the I war know. in Iraq and went down to, to all this stuff. Okay, so um, the um, so so with with all of this said, what we have is is a situation where we need to keep these principles in mind, uh, given the fact that there is um, you know. The the I guess what I'm trying to say is the threshold for being well known should be a little bit higher these days since there is the ability for more people uh, to become uh, well known and you know we can't apply the same sensibilities uh, as what we did you know back in back in the old days uh, than the you know these days when everybody can be famous for you know not just 15 minutes but maybe 17 18 20 minutes. Right. There's a couple of things interesting in this case to me. Number one is, Kashmir, uh, you alluded to Courtney Love's insanity by social media defense, which reminds me of something we were talking about, I think, on the last twill, um, where, you know, the whole context of social media encourages people to, to say things that they wouldn't say to people's faces necessarily and, and to say them in a yeah. durable, searchable way. Um, and also the notion that, you know, I mean, we've been talking about the the degradation of privacy in in some way and and the way people's privacy's privacy expectations are morphing and you know the the whole notion that one kind of person could be a public figure while others with public president presences um would not be um seems to be in flux and perhaps going by the wayside uh, Marty, any thoughts on either of those points? I want to agree with Evan about going back to the purpose of uh, the public figure. Did you hear that noise, Denise? Yeah, I don't know where that's coming from. Sorry, it might be the okay. Forbes office. I apologize. Right. That's okay. So first off, again, we have to go back to Times v. Sullivan, which is the case that created that actual malice standard. And there you had a truly public figure uh, and an interest, uh, it had to do with a, a, a sheriff in the South during the civil rights dispute, um, a truly public figure suing a news organ, the New York Times. And in this situation where you have a very questionable public figure suing someone who is not really a news organ at all. Um, so this seems like very kind of inappropriate use of the public figure actual malice standard. I do, however, agree with your concept that these micro-celebrities are, to paraphrase, people who are going to be famous to at least 15 people, um, that it can be a situation where they, they are a public figure. 
Now, with regarding to the degradation of privacy, when I look at my 12-year-old and my 14-year-old on, on Facebook, um, they clearly have a different idea of privacy. Um, I think they are embarrassed by less, and I think that the concepts of what is per se defamatory is going to be different when they're adults than, than what it is to us. Right. Well, I want to get into um, talking about how folks uh, are finding their personal information discovered by people they're not expecting to be looking for it uh, after the break. But I also want to talk about our sponsor for this episode of Twill, Squarespace.com. And actually, I mean, this goes right along with what we're saying. One of the best ways to control what's being said about you online is to have your own online presence and have that be the definitive place for information about you. And Squarespace is a great way to set up that kind of presence. Um, It's really, really wonderful and easy to use. Uh, It is the easiest way to publish a high-quality website or blog. Its UI for creating and managing a site or a blog is really beyond compare. I mean, it's so wonderful and easy and flexible. Whether you're a beginner or someone who's a CSS expert, it's going to have everything that you need. There are hundreds of beautiful templates to choose from that then you can tweak and customize to your heart's content, really make it your own unique presence on the web. It's an all-inclusive service that gives you modules to build your website, including a blog module, a forum, a form builder, Flickr photo display, a whole gallery for photos if that's what uh, you'd like to do, widgets to bring in all the social media things that tie into your life, Twitter, Facebook, and everything else, Google Maps, and more. One feature that I really have um, explored and been impressed with lately, I was helping a friend of mine set up her Squarespace site, which uh, you can check out at lorisworld.com, L-O-R-R-I-S-W-O-R-L-D. If you want to check out something that we just put together very quickly and easily, it's a great example of what you can do without a huge time or expense commitment. And yet it's a really nice looking site. And one of the things we did was give her a custom domain name. And, you know, we've talked, Hover is another frequent sponsor of the show, and we've talked about how nice all of their FAQs and help pages are for managing domain things. Squarespace does a ton of this, too, because uh, what it does is have a whole module that... uh, enables you to put in what your custom domain name is, and then it troubleshoots it for you. So if you haven't set up something properly, if, you know, I I don't know if people have done a lot of the tweaking behind the scenes of getting their domain names up and redirected, et cetera, but it can be like speaking an entirely different language when you have to decide, you know, what the name servers should say. And I don't even know what all the various fields are called anymore. Um, But Squarespace troubleshoots it all for you. It goes and it looks at that domain and it makes sure that everything's pointing to the Squarespace sites properly. And if it's not, it tells you what to fix. Um, So that's just incredibly valuable and makes it even easier to use. It's cloud architecture for speed and site stability makes it so that if you get slash dotted or otherwise have a ton of traffic coming to your site, you're going to stay up and rock solid Um, It's Ajax interface to drag and drop things around is incredibly intuitive. And it's got an iPhone and iPad app now working on an Android app so that you can keep everything up to date when you're on the go. Use Squarespace for all of your website needs. Build it, host it, and update it anytime. 
For a 14-day free trial, go to squarespace.com. Sign up for a free account. You don't need a credit card. You just try it out. It's the fully featured featured version of Squarespace during your trial period. And then if you want it, uh, you just tell them, yep, this is great. And they sign you up. So we thank you so much for Squarespace uh, for sponsoring the show and encourage you to go check them out and give them a try. Okay, so um, one of the people who... uh, a litigant probably didn't expect to be checking out uh, a Squarespace, or I'm sorry, a Squarespace page, a Facebook page, uh, was the judge in the case. Evan, you want to tell us what happened there? It was a social security disability case in uh, federal court in New Jersey, the district court of New Jersey that's in federal court. And um, I'm certainly not an expert on how, on the procedure here, but I know that there was a proceeding within the social security I office. The question was whether this uh, woman is entitled to disability benefits. Uh, you know, she's disabled, can't work because of her asthma. So the administrative law judge in the social security office uh, determined um, that she uh, was not uh, disabled because of her asthma, and the woman who was seeking benefits appealed that decision to the federal court, the district court judge in the district of uh, New Jersey. The district court judge, she determined that uh, essentially the, the administrative law judge didn't do as much fact-finding as what he or she should have, so the, the district court judge sent it back to the Social Security office to, to do more fact-finding and all of this stuff. She remanded the case to the, to the Social Security, to the commissioners, how you talk about it. That is a pretty vanilla kind of Social Security disability uh, claims uh, case. There's one interesting little piece of the of the case though and that comes in a footnote relatively late in the opinion uh, where the judge said something and I'm not quoting it because I don't have it in front of me here but said something like um, although I'm remanding it back to the administrative law judge um, I did note or she used the third person as judges often do the court noticed in doing its own <laughs> research uh, that plaintiff's Facebook page appears to show a picture of her smoking. Now, remember, the claim is she's disabled because she has asthma. So that could be a little bit problematic. So the ju- the judge went on to say, <clears throat> if indeed this turns out to be true, uh, plaintiffs uh, or the court is suspicious of, of plaintiff's claims. So that is, you know, really an intriguing little piece of information we get to the judge or get from the judge here. And it, and it, it could, you know, it could lead us to talk about a number of, of, of things. Uh, the first one kind of just being surprised, like, oh my gosh, judges are, are doing their own research like this. And, you know, you better watch out because, you know, not only your opponent is going to be looking at you, but, um, you know, the, the, the court itself. And so I've gotten some interesting comments on my blog where I, I wrote about this. And, and the theme uh, uh, kind of arises here is like, did the judge do something wrong um, by, by doing her own research. And I think that's something that's, that's worth talking about or worth at least thinking about because, um, you know, aren't judges supposed to be impartial? You know, that's this notion of impartiality is something that is, is really important to, to judicial integrity and judicial ethics, you know, in the code of judicial context code of judicial conduct talks about impartiality and how a judge should recuse himself or herself if he has personal knowledge or personal connection to the facts of the case. So, um, yeah, interesting my double for, for standard a number of radar goes off with this one. 
Because if a jury or if a juror does this, and we've seen this time and time again, it results in a mistrial frequently. If a judge does it, it's just fine. What do you think, Marty? Well, you're, you're think a couple of things. First off, judges are allowed to take judicial notice of stuff, and you're supposed to know what they're taking judicial notice of, and you sh and there's a limited amount of information that they're allowed to take judicial notice of. And I'm not quite sure that a single photo on Facebook might fall under, you know, that federal rules, what they, what's proper for them to take notice of, although they did put the litigant on notice, and the litigant has an opportunity to explain. Um, why can't a juror go do their own research? Well, because they're a juror and they, they're going to misunderstand what they see. And the judge is always allowed to obtain a whole lot more evidence than a juror. Um, I think this goes back to a lot of the themes that we've been talking about this entire hour, which is what are our expectations of privacy in this day and age? Also, once something is out there, it's out there. And maybe the rules to deal with this has to do with, for example, admissibility. Um, we can say, look, if this information is released in a certain way, then it's not going to be admissible. And if my kid does stupid stuff on Facebook when he's 12, then a college admissions person can't look at it. Maybe the answer is um, Professor Lessig should expand his Creative Commons concept that when you're making all of this information public on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, you're stating what your expectations of privacy are. Um, you know, in the olden days, if you walked outside your house and you were smoking and you had to prove that you had asthma, you were out of luck. Uh, but mm -hmm. on the internet, you put on a Creative Commons privacy expectations tag and that says, you know, look, this is not admissible or, or so on. Mm. I don't know if that would fly. Kashmir, you think this guy was just a victim of uh, Facebook's convoluted privacy settings menus? Well, that's what I was wondering. I was wondering um, what kind of, I mean, I know, I know it's administrative courts. So I don't know what um, uh, the representation was like, but it seems like every lawyer is now advising their clients to go through their social network, social networking presence and look for any evidence that can be used against them and, either take it down or, and I tell people to keep your privacy settings high. Um, and it seems like, from my understanding, is that judges are starting to look at that, that what your privacy settings are matter. Um, I think it's still evolving as I understand it. But um, since you, there are these very granular settings, if you've chosen to make it very private and people can't get to it, then, then that's supposed to be respected. But if you have it mm -hmm. exposed, then... It can certainly be used against you as long as there's not kind of subterfuge involved in, in getting that information. Right. The law is always concerned with what one's reasonable expectation of privacy is. So, you know, if you've taken steps to try and lock things down, I could see a court being sympathetic to that. Um, except perhaps in the instance if you're walking around wearing social media eyeglasses, which uh, is something that... Um, uh, was written up over at ZDNet by Rich Harris, and it's from a company called Zion Eyes. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what the things look like. Um, yeah, this must be them uh, featured in uh, Rich's story. They look like a pair of Ray-Bans. They look um, very 
innocuous. And uh, the, their capability is to be able, you know, it's sort of the next generation iteration of a Justin TV kind of live streaming situation where someone's walking around and they have a camera on their head, except for this time, the camera is in their glasses and uh, it's much more subtle that way, I would think. And, you know, it's possible to um, go around and just record folks without uh, them necessarily knowing what's going on or having any sort of affirmative consent to the fact that everything this person's doing is being streamed. Uh, Marty, any thoughts on this against the context of what we've been discussing? Well, the only precedent I can think of is um, surreptitious recording. Uh, that is an example where I could admit to horrible crimes to you over the phone, as I, as I have in the past, um, and that's not going to be admissible if you are recording it uh, without my knowledge. And I think that's the first thing that came to mind when you pointed out that article to me. Mm-hmm. Kashmir, uh, do you think that this is the death of privacy as we know it or just something that a fringe element of folks will pick up and use? I'm trying to figure out exactly how um, it's different from just all of the video taking that we're, mm-hmm. we're doing nowadays. Um, I was looking at a company called uh, Life Lab and it's, you put your iPhone in your kind of like front pocket and it just takes photos every uh, 30 seconds or three minutes. Um, it seems like this kind of constant uh, constant filming is uh, just becoming ubiquitous. Uh, what, I, what I guess what I found more disturbing recently is uh, this spate of surreptitious videos. Um, it's, this keeps happening with Planned Parenthood and then with NPR, um, where it feels like you almost have to be expecting that you may be filmed at, at any moment. And um, it's it's similar to your online presence that you should expect that somebody is going to Google you. It almost feels like you should expect that you may be uh, tape recorded at, at all times of your day. Right. Evan, any thoughts? Yeah, along those lines. I mean, it, I, I like talking about this notion of social media being an integrity enhancer. And, uh, you know, because think about, and I've used this example before, think about the photos of yourself appearing on Facebook doing a keg stand. There are two decision points. One was in putting the photo onto Facebook, you know, when your friend did that. And the other decision point was when you decided to do the keg stand in the first place. So doesn't mm-hmm. this remind us that we're supposed to go around kind of having good manners anyway? Um, maybe it's just that it's more of a question of accountability now. You know, if you're walking down the street and you're you know, doing something embarrassing like picking your nose. You know, you may have five people see you. Well, maybe now that could be, you know, 500 or, or more and it could be memorialized and all that stuff. So maybe all of this stuff is just making us better people. Right, Marty? <laughs> no, I, I actually very much uh, vehemently disagree with what you just said. Um, and that is one of the things that makes life e- worth living is that there are places that you could create for yourself um, where you can do keg stands. Those are called without- houses. <laughs> yes, maybe the photo was taken in a private house. I certainly agree with you that the decision to upload the photo is a different sort of decision. Um, but one person's accountability is another person's fascism. So I really vehemently don't like the idea that we can be secretly taped at any given moment. And, and that's somehow going to create something that someone's going to refer to as good behavior. So, yeah, sorry, yeah. disagree. Right. Well, Luke, and you know, I don't, I don't disagree with what you're saying either. 
I've heard some some young people are having parties now and they have a kind of um, you check your your smartphone at the door um, so that people can't take photos and can't make videos. And you can just have a a space where, you know, you're not being recorded unless somebody. This is awesome. So we have now a parallel between kid parties and federal court because either way (laughs) you can't take your phone. (laughs) You know. Um, Very often you'll you'll see bloggers talk about conferences that they've attended or important meetings and they will indicate that they had agreed to a no live blogging rule when they attended the conference um, where there's this understanding that people are going to speak more freely if they know that they're not going to be blogged. So there is a lot of situations and I I guess WikiLeaks kind of proves this that there can be more free flow of information when we do have a contractual understanding as to privacy. So, um, I mean, I, I, I absolutely agree that people will do less, fewer stupid things if they think that their parents are going to find out about it on pace, Facebook. But we can't have a situation where there's no confidentiality. Um, and, and we saw that argument made in the context of WikiLeaks. Confidentiality and privacy can enhance the flow of information. Right. Look at attorney-client um, privilege. I, I was trying to say, Floop in the chat room pointed out that these things would be perfect if you wanted to record your arrest or traffic stop or what have you. But but there is a flood of um, controversy about whether that is illegal wiretapping uh, from the law enforcement agencies. And that's still sort of all in flux. Um, so, Marty, uh, we are rapidly needing to bring this in so that uh, we can get tech news today on hard after Twill. But uh, very quickly, can you tell us about the uh, new AdWords case from the Ninth Circuit? Very important case, important to anyone who advertises. But I think uh, you're going to appreciate the whole Internet law aspect of it. Network Automations is the defendant. Ninth Circuit case that came out two days ago. Um, it was the reversal of a preliminary injunction where the defendant had purchased a competitor's trademark as a keyword and ran a somewhat neutral keyword ad. In other words, they, they were head-to-head competitors and the ad just had generic terms for that sort of product. Um, and they had been enjoined at the district court level and the Ninth Circuit has reversed. And the most important thing is that it takes a case from 10 years ago, the movie buff decision, which sort of uh, enhanced this concept of initial interest confusion, which is sort of like, oops, made you look confusion, where you, you have like a meta tag or a keyword of your competitor. They wind up on your site, so you get sort of a free eyeball. And through the context, they're not confused. It's apparent who they are. Ten years ago, they said that is actionable trademark infringement. This time around, they said, nope, we're we're even going to name the case. And it's sort of like reversing without saying you're reversing it. So that's network automation, Ninth Circuit, the beginning of the end, perhaps, to initial interest confusion as a doctrine uh, for trademark protection on the Internet. Right. And we have a ton of interesting trademark stuff to go through with Marty, but just not the time to do it on this episode of Twill. So I'm hoping, Marty, we can have you back on again soon. We'll check calendars after the show and and go through some of the other stuff. We have the graphics ready, so sure. I know. We have the graphics ready. We got to get you on again (laughs) soon. But uh, we're going to move right now to our tip of the week, which is right in line with um, all this talk of 
videotaping and photographing. And this also um, comes my way from Marty's blog that uh, soon in Florida, it could be a felony to photograph a farm. And uh, folks seem to be speculating that this is um, a reaction to PETA folks coming and trying to uh, gather evidence of uh, cruelty to animals and and make that public. And now there is some legislation pending that, that would actually make it a felony to try and gather that kind of information. So our tip, I guess, is be careful what you photograph in Florida. And uh, if you're making it livestock, be particularly careful. Uh, Marty, any more texture you want to add to that? Well, the um, the bill was inartfully drafted. So what they actually did is make it a felony to trespass on a farm, and they're making it a felony to take a photograph of a farm, even if you're not on the farm itself. So, for example, Google Earth, if you're out there, do not take pictures of any farms in Florida. Mm-hmm. If this bill is passed, it's a felony, and you're going to do hard time. Youch. Mm-hmm. All right, and we've got a couple of good resources of the week as well. Uh, the first is quite a humorous one from our friend Eric Gardner over at The Hollywood Reporter Esquire. He has a great post that I encourage people to go uh, check out called The Top 10 Legal Disclaimers in Hollywood History. Legal disclaimers are always fun to unpack, and uh, these are no exception. Uh, one of the briefer ones... Um, is from uh, the movie Borat. Selling piratings of this movie disc will result in punishment by crushing. (laughs) Nice. Similar other actual legal disclaimers uh, used in Hollywood. So go check them out over at Eric's blog. And then a more useful resource of the week, perhaps, um, is, let's see, let me pull it up so I get the exact right name. It is a new blog from uh, New York Law School's uh, School of Law and Journalism, and it is called Legal As She Is Spoke, which I think is a play on English as she is spoke, uh, which is um, a way of saying they're going to try and interpret the law of um, law and journalism. And uh, it looks like a great resource and uh, lots of contributors over there and I encourage you to go check them out and you're going to have a um, closer opportunity to check out some of their contributors as a slew of them are going to come on Twill over the ensuing uh, next few weeks. So um, we look forward to seeing them. And in the meantime, check out their blog at Legal As She Is Spoke. And with that, I'm just going to go around once and uh, have you guys Sign off. Tell us any last thoughts you may have about the stories we talked about today or anything else that's on your mind. Kashmir? Uh, thanks for having me. It was fun having you guys in my Forbes cubicle. Can we come? Yes. Um, Delighted I to guess, be there. <laughs> I mean, I guess um, one thing I kind of was left thinking about with um, Courtney Love is just this idea of kind of publication and how Twitter is this kind of strange mix of conversation that we have uh and then an actual kind of published um news source uh and and how that's kind of how that changes the the definition claims i think that's something i'll be thinking about moving forward from this call yeah that's a fascinating point and uh in the meantime we can uh, see you flesh out those thoughts on your blog the not so private parts at forbes and uh, folks can follow you on twitter at cash hill Thanks so much. All right, Marty, great to see you again. And uh, again, we're going to need to have you back on soon to try and unpack 
the other interesting recent trademark developments. Uh, in the meantime, folks can check Marty out at SchwimmerLegal.com and at Trademark Blog on Twitter. Any other thoughts? Um, I think the real solution to privacy is, is to lie. I think you should give misinformation about yourself <laughs> on, on Twitter and Facebook. It's, it's obvious. <laughs> All right. We'll make, we'll make that our second tip of the week, I guess. <laughs> from, you heard it here from, from a legitimate, legitimate member of the New York bar. <laughs> Semi-legitimate. Semi-legitimate. All right. Thanks again, Marty. And Evan, great to have you back on the show as always. Any uh, concluding thoughts? Oh, no, I've already, you know, exhausted everything I know for the day. But uh, it's, it's a, it was a lot of fun. It's always good to talk with you, Kashmir and Marty. You know, it's always great. So, uh, so really, really had a great time. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Great to see you again. And uh, folks should check out Evan at internetcases.com and Internet Cases on Twitter. And uh, you guys should all check out, of course, when we record live on Fridays, live.twit.tv. If you're listening to this uh, after the fact in a video or audio fashion, you c- it's really fun to listen to us live and come participate in the chat, irc.twit.tv or pound IRC in your IRC. I'm sorry, pound twit live in your IRC client. And uh, we post up questions before the show at Facebook, facebook.com slash thisweekinlaw. Love to get your feedback there. And with that, we'll wrap up Will 102. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next week.